I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. In this episode, we're joined by EVP at Atlantic Records, Austin DeBow. We talked to Austin about how his love of current affairs helped him get his first break, the lessons he's learned in failure, and some breaking news. If it was the influence and it was the perceived power that I enjoyed, I would have never left One Extra, where I was running things at One Extra. I left Spotify at the height of Spotify's influence in the UK music industry. Um, I wouldn't have left Apple. So power for me and influence has always been a byproduct of me just being passionate about music and shouting about music that I love. However, as always, we started by asking Austin why he chose a career in the music industry. I always loved music, but I never thought I'd work in the, the, the music industry. But when I look back at my career and from the age of like 11, 12 through to like 19, when I sort of formally got into the industry, I realised that, oh shit, actually, after all, I probably was like magnetising myself towards working in music. Like I was helping friends out that needed CD covers made and I was trying to go to every music event going and I was going to the music seminars and stuff. And um, I've always had this mad passion for music that's been mixed with a mad passion for trying to second guess how audiences are going to behave. That's why I work in music, because I, I love music, man. I mean, it sounds so so simple and so ridiculously um, simple to say, but that's why, man, I love I love music. And um, I tried other things. I tried Sainsbury's, didn't work. <laughs> you know what? Sainsbury's loss is the music industry's gain, right? So Factual. I've been following your career for a minute. We've known each other for a minute as well. It's been a, obviously been a pleasure to kind of watch what you've done from afar. I mean, you are clearly one of the mercurial talents in our business and have done some incredible things on your journey. You've shaped our business in the past 10 or 12 years. And I really want to get into that as we go and kind of get you to tell your story. But you talk about your kind of, you know, just growing a love of music as you get as you were growing through your your early years into your teens. What were the kind of music that you were listening to, and where where were you going, and where were you getting that fix? Um, I would say the first ten years of my life, so my primary school years, were really about me hearing music seep through underneath and through the gaps of my older brothers and sisters' bedrooms. <laughs> it was me hearing um, certain songs for the first time and recognising the bass sounds that were like fudding the, the the bed. Do you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, there was no real musical choice, um, not only because, you know, streaming services didn't exist and you had to um, consume what you were given by mainstream media, also because uh, it was it was my mum's choice and if it wasn't my mum's choice then it was my, my sister's choices and if it wasn't their choice then it was my, my older brother's choices so um, for me growing up in South London um, late 80s I would say from like the late 80s through to the, the, the mid 90s when I started um, secondary school it was like West African high life music it was you know top 40 British pop music um and of course the American um and, and global superstars, the Michael Jacksons, the princes of this world, etc. I would say my first love was actually more pop, mainstream stuff before I started secondary school. And then when I started secondary school, I started in 96, the UK garage explosion started in 97, 
I was able to look old enough to sneak into clubs by 98. <laughs> you get it? So, so it was, it was the perfect storm for me to fall in love with um, UK MC driven sounds. I couldn't believe that there were young black kids from similar areas to me that were making music and were making music videos and were driving the nice cars and had the jewelry and had the, the lifestyle with popping bottles, etc. that were just from down the road. What it felt like anyway, for going from the US superstars that we were consuming at that time. Um, when I started secondary school, you know, that was the height of the golden era of hip hop, right? That's like Jay-Z, Nas, Wu-Tang, um, etc. I fell deeply in love with UK Garage um, alongside my, my US hip hop journey. Um, and it, of course it felt realer. Do you know what I mean? Like it felt like the US rappers were living a life that felt so aspirational. It felt so far away that you had to consume it as a fan, but it was like watching a movie. It didn't ever feel like it was real at that moment in time when you're a teenager. But of course, listening to UK Garage and you're hearing street names and areas that you grew up in and clubs that, you, that, you know, you, even if you weren't old enough, your, your older brothers and sisters were going to. So, um, I would say that's when I fell deeply in love with music. And I would say the first like flex, the first specs of my journey in the music industry probably be- began, began from like, Mid, mid-secondary school, man. Like a lot of our friends and guests that have been a part of the podcast, you know, we come from a certain generation. You know, obviously I'm one generation in front of you. But, yeah, you know, there is always that dilemma, that aspiration, that ambition from our parents about education and the drive to kind of do better in, in that particular, in the academic field. Given the heritage that you have, and we know the strong, the strong demand to be edu- educationally strong, how was that pull for you against your your love of trying to get into the music business? I'm always really like thankful to my mum for having me lost. By the time she had me, man, my mum was mellow, man. Like shout out to shout out to um my brothers and sisters that had to carry the cross before me, man. Because, you know, we, we sort of joke around when we're together about how my mum, like, was. And, um, you know, the stories that I hear, I'm like, I I don't have that experience at all, guys. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, I told, I told mum that I wanted to work in media and she was like, yeah, that's cool. I told her I wanted to work in music and she was like, yeah, that's cool. Like, she, she was always so mad supportive, like, off me and off my journey. And she, of course, wanted to make sure that there was a backbone, a foundation of solid exam results. And of course, I sort of done well in my GCSEs. I done well in my A levels, A's and B's, and you know maybe a couple of C's and D's as well. But <laughs> um, you know th- there was there was that foundation. But really, when it became clear that my journey was a creative one, there was never really a conversation around what that might look like if it fails. Like she always had like so much belief in me. I was really lucky. So tell us about that entry point into the business, because it's like, you know, well, reading your bio, I mean, if you read it, it looks like there was never any kind of barriers or there was never any kind of pushback. It always looks like it's just, you know, one success point after the other. So we should get into that, but tell us about your entry point into the business and how you, you started. I would say it started when I was about 13, 14, all the men them in, in, in the class were rapping 
and singing and emceeing in front of the camera. And what I realised is that although I had an engaging personality and I was someone who could engage people, I was a very, very shit rapper. Like I was not a good rapper. <laughs> and I had an even worse singing voice. So was that where you wanted to go? Was that your aspiration to, to actually be in front of the microphone as opposed to be behind it and, sh- and shape it that way? For about two weeks, yeah. <laughs> then, for about two weeks. And then and then I realised very quickly, oh, no, no, Joe, like, Joe's a much better rapper. Oh, no, 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 Chris is a much better... It's like I kind of realised very quickly that that wasn't my, that wasn't my strong point. But what I did realise at the exact same time was I was very, very good at organising and creating theatre. Like I was very, very good at, all right, cool, you know what, we're going to do a little performance in the school hall and you're going to set up the stage like this and I'm going to film this and I'm going to introduce you and then you're going to walk through. And I was kind of uh, acting as like a show producer without really realising it at the time. We were just joking around, right? And this is we're probably the first generation of kids that had like cheap digital cameras. So right. we all, you know, okay. so sort of, I, I had like a little VHS camera or whatever, a little mini DV camera. So yeah, I realized quite quickly that that was my skill set. Fast forward a few years and I'm the person that people in my area that were making music would go to, to help them out with the non-music making side of things. So they would come to me to make their mixtape covers. They would come to me if they needed advice on how to um, book a, a festival show, because I was someone who could pick up the phone and imitate um, <laughs> and imitate you know a non a, a non South London kid, let's say uh, when 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 yeah, yeah 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 do you know what I'm saying when when speak when speaking to like people on the phone and that so I suppose I became a bit of a media mogul like in my in my area and again I'm looking back sort of 15, 16 years on and saying, oh, okay, I was a medium. I definitely didn't feel that at the time. I was still broken, you know, having to, you know, do whatever. Fast forward a couple of years on from that and I'm basically managing my brethren, um, Smiler. All right. And um, Smiler, um, who I grew up with, like same primary school, same secondary school, same college, more or less a brother to me. And I'm basically managing him. And he's at a stage where radio stations like One Extra and Capital Extra, formerly Capital Choice FM, were interested in playing his music. Um, He was at a stage where nightclubs wanted to book him for shows and stuff. So through managing him, I started to make contacts in the music industry. So that's basically um, my first kind of informal steps. That's kind of really what bust me. It was by managing my brethren. Um, and making like CD covers for people and, 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 and marketing plans for people. And that journey with Smiler led you to One Extra. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How did, I mean, how did that come about? And yeah, it'd be really interesting for you to kind of, to give us a deeper insight into what that meant for you and what you learned from that time there, your initial time there. So uh, basically what happened was I had been rejected about 200 times by different like media and music companies right that I was writing to so I said to myself all right let me try and go to a company that isn't as big as channel four universal bbc itv etc 
I applied for a company um, that was called Durrance. And um, Durrance are a media monitoring agency. So I suppose before um, Google News was a thing, and you could just type your name into Google and uh, the results will come up, um, big companies and celebrities would pay media monitoring agencies, right? To like read the news, read the press and, and, and make sure that no one was saying anything bad about them. So I basically came in on day one and... When I've come in on day one, they were like, right, so your job is we're going to give you a list of clients that we have on our roster. And it's your job to basically sit on this computer and flick through these articles. And each of your clients will be highlighted in the newspaper article or the website article. And it's your job to basically read through that article all the way through and see whether that result of that particular client is a good mention a bad mention or like a neutral mention. So I sort of got the sheet of paper, the, the guy sat me down, I turned on the computer and my first client, it said at the very top was the BBC. Now, at first I thought that was a, a win. Like I was like, raw, like I'm like 19 years old and they've, <laughs> they've put me on the B, big BBC. Like I really <laughs> thought I, w- I had like, you know, I had, I had been given like a top client. And of course what, <laughs> what I realised very, very quickly was that the BBC is mentioned hundreds of thousands of times a day in newspapers, <laughs> yeah. in, in different yeah. organisations. So, so actually, that's the that's the uh, that's the client that you want the least. So, least, yeah, um, yeah. O- over about a six month period, I basically read. I mean, it must have been thousands and thousands of articles about the BBC. Now, of course, what happens when luck meets preparation? I was soaking in all this information about the BBC and I basically became like this fucking world-class genius when it came to (laughs) understanding the intricate ways in which the BBC operates because I was doing nothing but coming in at nine o'clock, reading about the fucking BBC for seven, eight hours a day and then going home and fucking, you know, turning on BBC News 24. So basically uh, what happened was while I was working for Durrance and reading about the BBC, just like bored out of my skull, I was making more links through managing Smiler and through helping out other artists in my area. Um, And I was building somewhat of a relationship with um, a couple of DJs at One Extra, people like Ras Kwame, for example, big up Ras Kwame. Um, uh, Yeah. um, Who else? Um, DJ 279 uh, at Choice FM and and a few other legends, Um, Jenny Francis, etc. Yes. Um, So, uh, yeah, basically I was, um, yeah, doing that. I was at Durrance and I was flicking through the BBC Jobs website and a job came up working for Radio 4 and Radio 5 Live. Um, That job was um, for a um, a media coordinator. The media coordinator, sorry, it was called a media scheduler. And the media scheduler is the person who schedules the adverts that the BBC put in between their shows, obviously bigging up other adverts. I was like, you know what? I'm reading the job description and I'm like, I think I can do this job. Like, even though I don't have any experience working for a big company like the BBC, it says you need to know about current affairs. So, you know what? I know a lot about current affairs because I've been like reading the news for like nonstop, like for six, seven months. So I applied for the job, had the interview and... um yeah, there was like a really, really fluky m- moment at the end where basically I probably didn't do enough during like the main part of the interview to get the job. But as I was leaving uh, the room, uh, the guy who was interviewing me, he was like, oh, Austin, just c- come back for a sec. It says here on your CV that um, you watch 
BBC News 24 and Sky News, like that's your favourite like channel to watch. Like that can't be true, can it? Like you're like 19 years old. Like, you know, you, you know, you I can tell you're a cool trendy guy. Like, and I was like, yeah, no, I mean, that's my favourite, that's my favourite thing to do. Like I just watch the news all day, like watch the news and listen to music. And he was like, okay, cool. So who, who won the German election that this morning? And I was like, oh, Angela Merkel. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. And who, who did she defeat? And I was like, oh, Gerhard Schroeder. And it was literally that answer that got me the job. Just some, a, ran, <laughs> a random question about German politics. Do you know what I mean? I just so happened to be watching the news that morning when I was putting on my suit, getting ready for the interview. And again, I sort of talk about when luck meets preparation. Do you know what I mean? I was prepared for the question, but it was yeah. fortuitous that I had uh, I had that knowledge inside my brain, man, but I was prepared for it. So that was basically how I got into the BBC. From there, I said to myself, let me use it as an opportunity to work my way into one of the like radio stations that play music. Because, you know, for those that don't know, Radio 4, Radio 5 Live, they're speech stations. They don't play music per se day in, day out. I just made sure that I did everything in my power to hustle, network, um, annoy people. And then, yeah, when an opportunity came up at One Extra for a music scheduler and I read the job spec and the job spec said, the job spec was my exact job spec that I was currently doing, but instead of adverts, it had music. (laughs) So I was like, this has got my name written all over it. Like, There's no way I'm not going to get this job. And um, yeah, thank God we had uh, Laura Lucans in that in the head of music position at the time. Man, big up, big up, Laura Lucans will always say that's the woman that put me on. She's the one who gave me a chance. The BBC HR department actually called her. I've never said this before. The BBC HR department actually called Laura and said, "Are you sure you want to employ this guy? He's a bit of trouble." And you know what? She stood firm and she employed me. And I'll always, always rate her for that, man. So yeah, big up Laura. She's the one who put me on. During your time at One Extra, what did you learn? What did you take away? Because that, again, I mean, that was really, I mean, in some ways, the foundation block of where you kind of jumped off from and where you've, where you've gone to throughout your career. Definitely, man. Like One Extra was an amazing training ground for me. It taught me to be thorough in my work. Uh, it taught me to really value excellence. When I joined the BBC, I joined the BBC in 2005. So I joined... I was 19 going on 20, I think. Yeah, when I yeah, I just turned 20 when I joined the BBC. And it was at a time where it was a year before YouTube launched. So this was a time where the BBC was really the leading authority and really the only place where you could get world-class content outside of his uh, outside of obviously the the sky channels and 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 channel 4 etc but really it was the bbc um this is before netflix before uh, you know before um uh, the streaming the platforms yeah exactly so i was joining a place where that was the pinnacle if you was a content creator that was the pinnacle yeah it taught me all that stuff and it also taught me man that like if you're passionate about music you got to show it because them early days at One Extra, man, in the One Extra playlist <laughs> meetings, they, they weren't easy, man. Like you had you had a bag of very passionate, very vocal black music experts that all had a very valid opinion on why we should or shouldn't support a particular record. Um, so yeah, man, I learned that you've got to be fearless in having in having an opinion. You've got to be confident in how you deliver your opinion. Um, and just because somebody thinks different to you doesn't mean that they're right. So yeah, they're kind of the main things I would say that I learned. And then I also learned how to second guess the audience. 
like much better than I had done before. I've always obsessed over what makes an audience tick. Like why do millions of people en masse decide to click on a particular, you know, song? Why do millions of people en masse decide to press, you know, a particular corner of their screen to listen or to watch something? Like how how do we get people to move as a group, as a unit, all one way? And at One Extra, man, I had a lot of fun um, doing that, man. Why do you think people click on a particular thing? Why do you think they want to obsess over a particular piece of music? What were the insights that you that you drew from that that led you to be able to discover being passionate about certain certain pieces of music that you felt had more of a chance than something else? And maybe that you know instances that you can give to people listening as to as to how they should go about making their music the piece of music that should is the most attractive. There are almost like two different ways that you can look at it. So um, history is a great teacher, right? So when I was at radio, I was able to say, all right, we've got this particular song. This particular song shares some of the same characteristics of a song that we had playlisted, you know, previously that our audience seemed to like. So because it ticks this, 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 and this characteristic, I'm going to put my money on this working, right? You're gambling, effectively. I was being paid to gamble, right? Yeah. That's kind of one of the ways. And then the other ways is you've just got to just trust your gut feeling, man. And that gut, like the gut is a very powerful tool. And um, there were a lot of times where I was hearing music that didn't sound like what else was out there at the time. Like you think of all the people that have come through in the last X amount of years. Like you think about when gigs first came through think about when Skepta went through his experimental phase um you think about um Chip Bizzle Kano those that have survived the sort of the test of time gets etc there was always a point where we were like you know what nothing sounds like this but you know what we fucking like it and we reckon the audience will too and luckily we got it right more often than we got it wrong and I got it right more often than I got it wrong you know, really, that's it, right? Like anyone who works in the music industry is being paid to gamble on their gut. Your job is to say, do I go left, do I go right, or do I go straight ahead? And no one really knows the answer. Like if we're being super, super honest, you know what I mean? Those people that have got great hit rates are people that have, you know, guessed right maybe 55 times out of 100, you know what I mean? But, you know, everyone leaves behind the trail of wrong decisions they've made like over over the years and decades in some cases. But I would say that like anytime there's been a moment where I felt like I've heard or seen something great, it's always just like, it's never been derivative, right? It's always been something where I'm like, okay, there's, in fact, you know, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. It's never sounded generic. It's, you know, all, all, all music in some way, shape or form is derivative, but it's never sounded generic and it's never sounded like off the now. It's always sounded off the future. So yeah, when I think to... Yeah, when I think about the artists that I'm working with now at Atlantic, but yeah, when I think back um, at, at the other roles that I've had, man, like all the times when I've really believed in an artist and really believed in their journey, it's always sounded like something that is going to be popular in a year's time, even if it's not being listened to by millions of people now. Even though you were wildly successful at One Extra and you had a great time, your career's burgeoning there, it didn't stop you from leaving. You know what? It never. Um, and... 
I mean, I had an amazing time at One Extra, right? Like I was in charge of music policy at the station when we finally broke over a million listeners um, a week, which was an incredible experience. I was involved in some like amazing uh, initiatives that we done, including um, a day called Youth Takeover, where we had young people take over the station for 24 hours, unheard of in British radio, in radio before and after. And I think it's been done since. I was involved in like world record attempts, all, all types of stuff, man. I had an amazing experience um, at One Extra, but I felt like it was about to rain in terms of this looming thing called streaming. And I've always said that like, I, I always want to like work at organisations that are the future and that are working towards the future. And I love the BBC the BBC, I sort of consider like home. You know, I've got so many friends that work there, provided me with some amazing opportunities. But, you know, the BBC can sometimes be quite a tricky place to work. It's like a big dysfunctional family. Do you know what I'm saying? That's that's the BBC. So I felt like I had outgrown the BBC and I wanted to work at an organisation that was working towards like the future. Your time with One Extra was like in two halves, right? So in the middle of that, you went off and you started the hub. Yes, exactly. So... Um, I've always been entrepreneurial and I've always said that alongside my nine to five job where possible and where allowed, you know, I always have like, you know, sort of side hustles and business um, ventures. And yeah, I'm someone who likes to be entrepreneurial inside organisations, but also outside of organisations too. Um, and yeah, when I was 26, I decided that I was going to leave the BBC and start up a management company. Um, that management company ended up being like, I suppose, a media, content, marketing agency. We did a little bit of everything, basically. This was maybe only about a year after Instagram launched, I think. I can't remember when Instagram launched, but I'm pretty sure Instagram was quite new at the time, I remember. So it was really before the days of, like, influencers. But we were, I suppose, we were doing influencer partnerships really before it became a thing, I would argue. Um, we looked after uh, radio presenters. We looked after athletes. We looked after singers. Uh, and we had a sick little roster, man. And we've done some amazing things, man. I'm really proud of the um, of the company that I created, man. We grew to like uh, 10, 10 plus staff. You know, we, we were sort of like a six figure a year business. And we were involved in some incredible things, man. We looked after two athletes that won medals at the London 2012 Olympics. Um, we were involved in um, a hit record um, from a girl group. But, you know, a lot of typical mistakes that new business owners make what sort of I made them um so even though we were doing amazingly publicly the finances and um the numbers around the business the business was just kind of washing its face the amount of effort we were putting in to just about break even each month and each quarter the maths weren't mathing as they say yeah, um, yeah. so I was like you know what it, it's time for something new and then as luck would have it literally a day after I said that to myself um my old boss at the BBC called me and said that there was a vacancy coming up to run, to run one extra, you know, do I want to come back and, and, and basically like help run the station? I was like, yeah, man, for sure. I've, I've left the BBC once before and it was a, a really amazing experience. I went back for a few years, created some more magic, <laughs> made some more history and then, and then left them again. So tell us about the magic you created at Spotify, because I think that obviously you were there at the, at the time when streaming was really, on the way up, it was it was the the new hot thing. Record companies were really beginning to embrace it. You were taken from your role at One Extra, brought in to be you know senior editor over there. From there, you went to head of music, culture, and editorial. 
But along the way, Austin, I know there are a number of incredible initiatives and things you did, and it'd be really good for you to talk about that role as well and about the things that you you, you implemented in your role of you know, helping British black music on, on its way. Definitely, man. So I, I feel like um, Daniel Eck, who's the founder of Spotify, and Nick Holmesden, who was the global head of um, editorials, a playlist at the time at Spotify, I think they recognised that there was, even though they were building the future, there was a lot they could learn from um, recruiting and partnering with people that were forward thinking, but also had the old school values of being really passionate about music and building brands around music. So yeah, they hired Georgia Gatudis, who was my boss at the time at Radio One. They then came after me, uh, George and, and the team came after me not long after. And the strategy was really clear, man. It was build out brands and um, be really passionate and direct around the music that we're, that, 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 that we want to support. I remember when I was leaving the BBC to join Spotify, Spotify wasn't a household name at that time. And there were a lot of people in the industry that were even like, bro, like, what are you doing? Like, what's this Spotify thing? Like, we've never, like, we've never heard of it, including some pretty, like, significant level artists, you know what I mean? That have gone on to become, like, big streaming juggernauts, like I remember. But anyway, I joined and I just went about trying to be as disruptive as possible. It was the first time ever where um, I felt like I could help create a genuine pipeline of black music talent to come through. At radio, a radio playlist has only got 40 spaces. So at any one time, you're only really going to change five to six records on the playlist each week. So that meant that over the course of, you know, a, a year, I could really maybe support 250 new songs a year, right? Sort of at, at five a week-ish. When I sort of got the keys to the Spotify editorial ecosystem, I was like, I can support 250 artists a, a day if I want to. The amount of energy and effort that goes into getting a radio playlist is, is amazing. And, you know, here at Atlantic, we've got, I would argue, the best radio promotions team in the business. But they expend a lot of energy and a lot of effort in making sure that um, our artists are represented on on um, on radio. And if you're on the other side of it, you have to say no way more than you say yes, right? So if you're sitting on the other side of the, of the kind of the radio playlist committee, you're having to turn down more than you're saying yes to. And at Spotify, I could support everything that I rated. Like for the first time ever, I could support every single song that I rated. So yeah, basically uh, spent a year disrupting the charts, <laughs> um, probably annoying a bunch of record labels, <laughs> annoying a bunch of execs by not playing by the rules and just supporting what I wanted when I wanted. And then while that was happening, I was looking at our playlist ecosystem and I was looking at what was happening with brands like Wireless Festival um, and Park Life. And I was saying, and I was saying to George, you know what, George, we need a playlist that is like an audio representation of wireless festival because at the moment we've got grime shutdown that's just for the grime heads we've got rap uk that's just for the rap heads we've got um this is how we do which is for the r&b heads but there's nothing that combines the best of black british music and that represents 
you know, someone who's going to wireless festival, you're not just going there for Tion. You're going to go there for Tion Wayne. You're going to go for Mahalia. You're going to go for Clavish. You're going to go for Georgia Smith. You're going to go for Koala. You're going to go for all these different acts and sounds and experiences. So um, me and George were literally just sat down um, a couple of days later over lunch, eating a sandwich, throwing ideas back and forth. And then I was like, who we are, where we are, who we be. And then we both looked at each other and were like, yeah, who we, who we be. And that was at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And at like 10 minutes past three, the playlist was like live. And that's the beauty of like a company yeah. like, like, like a company that can move fast is that when you've got these amazing creative ideas, you bring them to life really quickly. Um, so yeah, we launched Who We Be um, in, I think it was November 2016. And within quite a short space of time, it became, yeah, I'd argue probably one of the most influential playlists um, in, in UK music. And yeah, we turned it into like a, we, we fully turned it into a full scale brand, man. So we, we put on a live event. We sold out Ali Pali with one of the sickest lineups. I'm, I'm looking at the lineup Incredible. now. The lineup was uh, Bugsy Malone. This is in alphabetical order. Bugsy Malone, Cardi B, Dizzy Rascal, Giggs, Jay Huss, Steph London and Big Shaq, who obviously had the Man's Not Hot Record yeah. at the time. Do you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. yeah, man, we put on a bad boy event and we turned it into a podcast as well that was hosted by DJ Semtex. And then since I've left, the brand has lived on. And that's what's amazing, right? Like legacy. People talk about legacy and I sort of sit there and I'll, I'll, I'll um, hear people talk about who we be that I've got no idea that I'm kind of involved in it or I founded the playlist, etc. And that's an amazing thing, man, that you can sort of leave these things that can be enjoyed by sort of future generations in terms of helping to support them in their journeys. So yeah, that was, that was um, probably uh, the thing that I'm most proudest of um, at Spotify. But yeah, as head of editorial, I ran the playlist ecosystem. Um, so playlists like, you know, Hot Hits UK, New Music Friday, etc. I was, I was in charge of the team that program knows. Um, and I then connected with the wider global um, ecosystem to ensure that our UK artists were being represented at a global level too. And I like to think that I played a small part in being one of the reasons why UK artists, UK black music artists, um, are enjoying success internationally. Do you know what I mean? That kicked off around about the time that me and the team were were doing what we were doing at Spotify. I can't take all the credit because, you know, it would have happened anyway, but I like to think that we, we hurried that journey along a little bit. Now, listen, I'm sure you, I'm sure what you, well, listen, I'm not sure I know, and there are many other people know, that your your part in that was a major accelerant in ensuring that, that British black music at, at every level and in every genre got a much bigger, a much bigger showcase and has definitely helped it, helped it, on the world stage and giving it a platform so you know man I mean I'm sure that people say it to you but if they don't you know I'll say I mean you used to be incredibly proud of what you and the team over there have been able to do because you know you've left your mark on British black music you know on your journey so far so so big up to you and thank you there are many artists out there I know Austin that may not have the opportunity that may not have been able to kind of meet you in person but I'm pretty sure that you know even though I know how modest you are that those who have will have shaken you by the hand and thanked you for what you've done. But, you know, it brings me on to another, on to another question. Obviously we'll get onto your journey at Apple shortly, but you know, one extra, you go to Spotify, you have who we be. Have you ever felt a responsibility as a cultural gatekeeper, given the positions that you have, that you've held? 
I don't like the word gatekeeper, but I felt like a guardian of the culture um, and, and a protector of the culture. And that means that sometimes you have to make really difficult decisions. It means that sometimes you have to say no when you really want to say yes. <laughs> sometimes it means you have to say yes when you really want to say no. Sometimes it means that you've got to burn certain bridges to ensure that the integrity of the culture is kept intact. So yeah, man, I've definitely felt um, that weight of responsibility kind of throughout my career, to be honest with you, because my journey into the music industry was an atypical one. I didn't start from the very bottom and work my way up from kind of intern to where I am today. I started off at 20 years old as the assistant music manager at One Extra. So from day one in my journey, um, I've I've always felt like I've sat in the centre of the industry, making sure that I sort of open as many doors as possible for people to come through. And even though, you know, I, I sort of back for a side now, right? I'm, I'm at Atlantic Records and it's, you know, uh, it's Warner Music and, and it's, it's us kind of, you know, from now until forever. I still feel that responsibility to help as many artists as I can. And, you know, there were artists that, you know, there's stuff that will never be public. Do you know what I mean? But there's bare, you know, there's bare artists that I'll, I'll, I'll help out or give advice to, even if they're not signed to Atlantic Records. Do you know what I mean? Just out of the love of the culture, man. So yeah, for sure. I definitely feel that. And how did you deal with the responsibility of people looking at you as the person that could potentially change their destiny with the power you had over playlists and, you know, being able to kind of move, move records? You know what blocked it out? Just block, block, block it out. The minute you start thinking about the influence that you weld, um, I think that's where people go wrong. And there are some people um, across the world that are put in positions of influence, not just in music, but just generally, and they let their power go to their head. And I just never, I just never think about it. Like, like influence has been a byproduct of my passion for music. If it was the influence and it was the perceived power that I enjoyed, I would have never left One Extra where I was running things at One Extra. I would have never left Spotify when I left Spotify at the height of Spotify's influence in the UK music industry. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I wouldn't have left Apple. So power for me and influence has always been a byproduct of me just being passionate about music and shouting about music that I love. Um, it's never been the reason why I've kind of accepted a job or, or um, sort of, uh, gone to a different organisation. The fact I joined so early and was given that responsibility so early allowed me to have, and still allows me to this day, to have quite a unique outlook um, on, yeah, on, on how to sort of treat this trusted kind of wonder that I've been given in the different positions that I've held. So you've, you you have your time at Spotify. It's you know, obviously incredibly influential. Then you make the jump to the other giant in the business. What was your time at Apple like? Apple was a really amazing company, just at the wrong point in my career. I felt like I had done everything that I could do at Spotify. And Apple presented an amazing opportunity to take some of those learnings and explode it even further, right? In that, you know, Apple's a hardware company. Apple is a podcast platform. Apple um, is, at the time, they were just about to launch Apple TV and Apple Arcade. 
as someone who's entrepreneurial and as someone who loves to disrupt, I loved the idea of joining an organization that disrupted, which, you know, Apple kind of have done throughout their sort of 40, 45 odd years as, as a company. Yeah, I sort of joined. And I think if I'm being super, super harsh, I always knew that I would end up at a record label. Anyone who knows me will tell you that, right? That, I, that my journey has always been leading towards working for a record label. That's not even me capping or like anything like that. That is actually the truth. Did I think that the timeline would happen the way it did? No. But I was at Apple for not a, not a long amount of time. And you know what? Um, I got a, a, a few very interesting phone calls, do you know what I mean? From some some pretty senior people in the business, man. And um, I had to look at it and I had to be honest with myself um, and honest with, um, you know, uh, my, my family and the missus and everyone and um, be like, you know, do, do I want to try and change the world again? going on the recorded side of the business or do I want to stay on the streaming side? And this felt like the right thing to do, um, even though I hadn't been at Apple for a super long time. So um, yeah, I sort of finished the Apple journey um, a little bit earlier than expected. And that was three years ago now, man. And I've been, at, I've been at Warner for three years, man. And it's been an amazing three years. I can actually say that I have just been promoted to president of black music so um oh, that's a world exclusive that's a world congratulations sir thank you congratulations thank you. That's, that, that's a that's an exclusive for you man so, that's yeah, amazing well done it's a president of black music um so it's president of black music and i'm i'm still evp of atlantic records um and also president of black music so it's like a sort of a double title um but they're paying you, you know, more for that right there's one or there. There's a couple of extra beans, I'm sure, yeah, no, no, I mean, yeah, on, yeah, I on, on say, the table. But very good. But, but um, make sure I want to make sure you get your money. That's all. Uh, you know what? I hear that, man. I mean, <laughs> I, I would say, I would, I would say that, like, what, like, any job that allows me to m- money has again certainly in my most recent job has been a byproduct of my passion as well. Do you know what I mean? So, um, it, it, of course, everyone needs to be paid and everyone's got bills to pay. I certainly do. Um, but I'm I'm just happy that Tony Harlow and Ed and Bryony, who have been great partners, and of course, Max, you know, believe in what I've achieved in my first three years and, you know, want that journey to continue, man. So, yeah, now listen, I'm, I'm super excited about the next phase of my journey here at Warner and Atlantic. We've got some exciting and some proper sick music coming up. Um, this this spring and this summer, that's where we're at. So you know, you've been there three years now, and we can, we step away from that and then return to it in a minute. But the world has changed exponentially in the three years since since you've been there. I mean, obviously, you know, George Floyd, Blackout Tuesday. There's been a, a real a real drive amongst our industry to to increase diversity, inclusion, and to make those changes. Where do you think? As someone, as yeah, the new the newly installed president of Black Music with within a Warner organisation in the UK, you know, EVP, someone who is you know amongst the new wave of great Black execs. Where do you see Black execs now? Do you think there is a, that's there's still a disparity between the boardroom and the influence and the voice that we have? Do you see that changing at a senior executive level in the music industry? there is still a disparity between the music that is pushed by major music companies, the music that is consumed by consumers at scale and what boardrooms look like. And that's not just 
in the three major labels, by the way, because I personally think that the three major labels bear the brunt for an entire industry. When I go to certain award ceremonies, it's too non-black for my liking. It's too undiverse. I would say that, like, it's really important that people that are senior um, and are of colour in the industry continue to build up, to develop and to hire people you know at at a senior level and if they're not senior then how do you create a framework in which young talent can grow can make mistakes but can ultimately uh, get to a point where they can be considered for head of positions director of positions um and and so on at atlantic records we've got a a black um female director of marketing we've got people that are at a senior level um that are black including myself We've got a head of data and analytics who is black. And it's really important that um, all organisations follow a similar model where possible. I think sometimes people promote for the sake of promoting. And I think that that isn't always helpful. I think you need to promote and you need to adjust at the right time. Listen, I think companies could always be doing more, man. My experience of Warner in the last three years is that it's not been perfect, but it's definitely been In 2023, we are much further along than we were when I joined in 2020. From my point of view, man, I'm just making sure that I'm continuing to hire diverse talent and I'm making sure that I continue to um, promote where possible diverse talent too. Um, That's very important. You've been in the game now for a minute. So you'll have seen the changes. How does the business look to you from a diversity and inclusion perspective from when you started to where you sit now? When I started, there wasn't a gender pay gap that was published. There wasn't a um, ethnicity and race uh, pay gap that was reported. Warner published uh, both a race and, and gender pay gap. Um, there definitely weren't public conversations and questions like this, where senior executives were being asked about their opinion on DEI. It definitely felt like diversity, equity, and inclusion was. It was like just this thin in the corner, right? That was like, you know, normally just like one person for the whole company and it was an afterthought. Whereas now I would argue that DE&I is at the forefront of what a lot of companies do, certainly at Warner. There's no conversation that that we have as a senior leadership team around the way the company's going to move en masse where we're not uh, looking through a lens of DE&I. Um, and that's amazing to see. I sit on the board of the on the Social Justice Foundation board, um, so it's a hundred million dollar um, board. It's a ten year um, fund, and to date, around about two million, just under two million pounds, has been secured for UK organisations. That's real money in their bank accounts. That's not pledges. That's actual money, um, and that's a, that's amazing. That's incredible. There's still a lot to do. There's still a hell of a lot of um, education that needs to be done across the board, not just on black issues, on LGBTQ issues, on issues around not just uh, sort of racism around blacks, but South Asians, uh, the Jewish community, etc. And of course, things like misogyny and sexism. But I think we're definitely in a better place in 2023 than we were when I first joined in, in 2005. So let's get back to talking about music. Let's talk about the new role. Let's talk about you as EVP over Atlantic. And tell us about your day-to-day. Tell us what tell us what the role of an EVP is 
so our listeners can get a better understanding of what what you do. You're just not up there, just kind of like smoking cigars and drinking shams, right? So I'm popping bottles. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's more like sort of drinking smoothies and eating crackers <laughs> these days. It's, it's definitely not 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 champagne and cigars. Um, so what does an EVP do? I suppose what I do is um, it's my job to um, inspire, to magnify, to motivate, and to help my teams as they sign, develop, and put out new acts. That's probably the easiest way to describe what what an EVP does day to day. And then alongside that, um, I I work alongside um, the co-presidents, Ed Howard and and Bryony Turner, in in running the business. That's everything from um, the way in which we're structured to, um, you know, sort of the, the, the boring budget bits that you that you um, that you sort of have when you're when you're running a label. And there's a wider leadership team that includes um, Liz Goodwin and, and uh, Damian Christian. So that's kind of what 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 we do. I mean, the way that I summarize it to my friends is, you know, I, I sort of I've been doing the same job for 15 years. I wake up every morning and I argue with people about music, right? It's like, that's that's really what I do. Like, if we're being real, I wake up in the morning and then I have, you know, good arguments about great music. I have not so good arguments about, you know, music that we have differences of opinions on. Uh, you know, we it's, it's my job to debate and discuss and opine and have an opinion on music, what that music's going to do, how we're going to get it out to the masses um, and, and everything around it. But yeah, I'm supported by an amazing team. And there's a full black music infrastructure here that, that uh, comprises of A&R marketing, you know, and, and digital. So yeah, I would say that's that's what I do. I'm sure there's loads of other things. If I was to sit here and write a job spec, I could, I could go on forever. But to summarise, that's what I do. So when you look back on, you know, over into the rearview mirror and you kind of look at your journey, did this ever seem possible? Um, I mean, I've always been confident in my own abilities, man. So I've got to say yes, to be honest with you. Like, I always was very, very confident that I'd make my mum proud. I was always very, very confident that I was going to be an executive in some way, shape or form. Did I think that I was going to go on this squiggly journey that I've gone on? Absolutely not. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, like I was always confident that, you know what, I'm going to make it no matter what. There's no way I can stay in the hood. (laughs) There is no way I can stay in the hood. I'm far too bougie to stay in the hood. So we need to get, we need to get up out the hood. That was always my mentality, man. So I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to walk the walk and talk the talk to. Listen, I'm glad that someone admits they want to get out because there's there's so many people that are afraid to say that. But, you know, if you were going to look back and give yourself the younger you one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, Spend more time with your family. And when you look around for those people who inspire you, who are they? Outside of my family, it's just people that have, like, helped me on my journey, man. Like, everyone who's helped me on my journey has been inspiring. Like, um, Laura Lucans, Ray Paul... George Ogatudis, you know, Ed and Bryony, Darkus, Tony Harlow, Max Lusada, um, and then my and then my peers, right? So you look at people like Benny Scars, Benny and Jack, um, who manage uh, Dave and who run Neighborhood. Um, you look at um, Glenn and Ricky over at Since 93. I mean, maybe like half a generation kind of older than me, but yeah, I sort of consider them, you know, sort of OG peers. Obviously the Boatang brothers, big up, big up Alec and, and Alex. Who else? I'm sure Dummy, Disturbing London, 
Colin Batsar, Rich Castillo, <laughs> Rich, big up Rich. Yeah, don't, for, don't forget him because he's going to get upset. Big up, big up, big up. I know Rich is going to be listening to this. Big up, big, big yourself up, Rich, man. Um, you know, so, so, um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm inspired. I'm inspired by little bits of success that I see everyone having, man. It's dope. What are your remaining ambitions? What's left you to do? Listen, you're, you're nowhere near finished, but you know, there's got to be things on the horizon you kind of look at and go, yeah, I, I want that. I'm excited about what the next few years holds for, for me and for Atlantic Records and for Warner Music in terms of us really trying to um, take a run at dominating and um, being really in there in the conversation of, you know, who's at the forefront of black music culture and who's at the forefront of youth culture. Um, and, you know, listen, like I said, I've just been promoted. I'm good. <laughs> um, but... But I'm definitely excited about the future, man. And I, you know, like I said, I was at the BBC for eight years. I was at uh, Spotify for three years. I've already been at Warner for three years. It doesn't feel like three years. I still feel like the new kid. Um, so I can see myself being here for a very, very long time, man, and building some historic legacy here, man. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited about what the future holds. Couple of last questions. What do you want for the people of colour coming behind you? One thing that always annoyed me was... Whenever I read a interview with a black executive, they more or less always say the same thing, which is that uh, as a black exec, you're trusted to have an opinion um, on black music issues, but you're not trusted as much to have an opinion on non-black music issues. Um, I've always been quite lucky in that I've always had supportive uh, managers uh, around me that have given me a voice when it comes to non-black music issues but I want to make sure that we open up the, the pipeline even wider um, so that the new generation that come behind me can of course excel in black music but if they actually feel like their destiny lies in rock or dance or pop then the colour of their skin isn't going to hold them back in, ter in terms of people taking them seriously man I'm passionate about that so no stereotyping, you know, talent is, it's all about talent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you kind of look back on it and when you kind of, when you have finished, what, what do you want people to say about Austin DeVoe? You know what? A wise man once said to me when I was getting a little bit gassed, when I was like a younger, more kind of <laughs> less refined version of what I am now today, less political. Um, uh, he, he was like, look, Austin, when you die, all the days are gone, right? They're not going to print your face on a coin. <laughs> They're not going to name a day after you. They're all gone. They've all been taken up. So stay humble. <laughs> and that, that has always, that, that got said to me when I was like 19 years old. And that, that's just always stuck in my head. And that's why I've always tried to lead with humbleness. Do you know what I mean? And of course, everyone's got an ego. And of course, it would be nice if people said nice things about you, man. But as long as what people have got to say is that I try to help people, then I'm good. I don't know whether you heard the David Miller episode. Yes, I did. I read it. Okay. Well, you know, David was very, very, very forthright in his opinions about the weight of, of support that black artists get in, com in comparison to their white artists. Do you have an opinion on that? You know what? Again, I can only talk about my own experience being on this side of the fence because this is really the first time that in detail I've had access um, and seen the numbers at Atlantic since I've been here no less has been spent on black music artists than their relative non-black 
music counterparts is what I would say. If I look at what we've invested in Tion Wayne, that's comparative to what we've invested in artists that are at a similar sort of, you know, level and stature to where he's at. If I look at Mahalia, the same applies. If I look at Koji Radical, the same applies. So I can't sit here and say that that's been my experience. However, I can appreciate that that's been other people's experiences or other labels. Um, and that's something that we need to address because that's clearly not fair if that's happening. All I can say is Austin the Boat, President of Black Music, Atlantic, EVP, thank you for what you've done on your journey so far for b- Black British Music, Black British Artists. Continue to do what you're doing, brother. We're all immensely grateful and we'll all continue to watch what you do and hope that you continue in the same vein. And thank you for joining us on the Did You Know podcast. Wicked, man. Love, 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 Adrian, man. Big up everyone, man. Thank you. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was Did You Know, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Our thanks to Austin for sharing his story. Thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, to Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials, and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW. You can now apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Head to our website, www.didyouknowpodcast.com for all the information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. This was Did You Know. Until the next time.